0: I think, like, the longer I exist in an industry, it makes me want to be the opposite of it. Like, I develop what I want to do from, like, a dissatisfaction, and then the satisfaction comes from doing the opposite, if that makes sense. Welcome
1: to The Body Protest. In this podcast, we combine storytelling and science to better understand
2: our relationship with our bodies. I'm Honey Ross. And I'm Nadia Craddock. And this is season four. So, do you know what I've been thinking about? Is how we're not doing our three, two, one high body protesters again. You know what? Why, we really, what happened? We really <laughs> slipped up
1: with that. What <laughs> happened?
2: I can't tell if it's
1: like that was like height of pandemic madness, and we were like, let's talk in unison, and then like the <laughs> <laughs> kind of smoke cleared, and now we're well, like, t- okay. But I, I miss it. I'd frankly quite like to do it now. Shall we? Yeah, I mean, it's a
2: real challenge. It's a real challenge to do a unison. It's thing? really. But it's I think we, us on our toes. we got really
1: it. close to perfection last time, but I think we can only get
2: closer really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, okay. Let's do it. Are okay. you ready?
1: Okay. Are you ready? Three, Three, two, two, one. one. High, High body, body breakers.
2: <laughs> we get so nervous. Yeah. It's like the completion. You just have to see it through to the end, but we did That's it. I think, confidence. you know,
1: it's all confidence on the landing and you know, we did I it.
2: Know, the execution. <laughs> oh my goodness. Honey, how are
1: you? I'm pretty good, you know. I am um, I'm trying to think. How am I?
2: I mean, you've been doing some fun things of late. I have Can can we talk about them?
1: Yes, we can. I got very very lucky and saw the people's princess Adele. I got to see an audience with Adele. Um I was sat very near Emma Thompson, who has gone viral from the event, from because she was life and soul of the party and got everyone up on their feet dancing. So there is like footage of me kind of like doing a little, little sad bop. Not sad. Well, I guess it's sad because Adele's music is somber. I was very happy, <laughs> but it was a somber bop, like rolling in the deep. It was
2: heaven. I um I cannot tell you how envious I am for being there in person. And even my mum is like an Adele fan, and she Adele actually grew up very close to. I did.
1: Wow. She's unbelievable. The top two rows of seats were um NHS key workers and Grenfell survivors. Like I was like you are incredible. Like she's amazing. And just I mean what a fucking voice. No one does it like Adele. Not a soul. Like
2: everyone was crying. Every single person. Oh, I fully fully believe it. I just oh.
1: It was pure magic. And like she's so funny, she's so effortlessly funny and likeable and I think there's definitely a lot of stuff we want to talk about that we can't get into on the main podcast, so if you want to hear the full, my experience at the Adele concert tea, you might have to become a patron, Uh, we will release a full uh, sizzling hot pot of tea on this. Um, Oh honey, what a
0: tease.
1: I know, I'm a bit of a tease, (laughs) but it was, it was the night of my life, I went like, like, the amount of people who showed up for Adele, like I couldn't... The people in the audience... Patreon gets the name drop version.
2: Yeah, yeah, please.
1: And let's just say there's a Samuel L. Jackson moment. I had a moment with Samuel. Oh,
2: there's so I much to come. You're, you're killing me.
1: Um, talk to me, Nadia. How are you doing? How has your week been? So
2: I am doing very well. Nothing as glamorous, but what I will tell you that's brought me some degree of joy is that I've rediscovered a Mintero. <gasps> oh, and delicious. The, yeah. <laughs> and I I just I don't even know what to say I have to have them I ha- I'm having one a day Mandatory No Man- I understand Mandatory I, I can't get through the day I'm thinking about it and I don't know It's my like five o'clock treat Oh my god And the sizzle of the bubbles The
1: sizzle of the green bubbles in a mint arrow. Oh that's poetry
2: No and then what's going to work out really well for me is that this phase this mint arrow phase is going to transition beautifully into my cherry chocolate orange for <gasps>
1: Oh God that's delicious Oh that's what do you prefer if you had to choose?
2: Oh, no, that's that's like okay, too hard, your, your house money. is on
1: fire, it's, it's the
2: arrow <laughs> or the
1: terries. Are you gonna take?
2: I mean, currently, currently, we're very much in that arrow space. Yeah. she's um, you've only got eyes for the arrow, but but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> I only got eyes for the arrow yet. Yeah, but currently. Terry's is coming, Terry's Trouble. is coming, Terry's is ready for it's his moment.
1: There is nothing like I don't know how it happens, but everyone seems to get. One member of the family will always get a Terry's chocolate orange. I think this is in any family at Christmas. Like, there is always a Terry's chocolate orange that shows up. Nobody knows where it came from. And I will eat it all. Like, I'm so ready
2: for that. Oh, completely. And this is very niche. But as a, as kids growing up, our we had a very lovely next door neighbour. And for Christmas, she would get my sister and I both a Terry's chocolate orange. But That's a she used neighbor. to get but, very good. She was very sweet. And um, I always used to get locked out and I'd always just go around and have to sit at her house until I could go oh. back home. Um, but then uh, going back to the Terry's Chocolate Orange, she would get my sister the milk one, my sister's younger, and then get me the dark one. And I don't like dark chocolate. And I, I, it, would, I'd, it would kill me every time because I'd be like, oh, this is so I kind. I was like, please, I want my sister's one. And um, also it's like, I get what she's doing of like, oh, I'll
1: give them the option. They can share. They can have half milk, half dark. That's never going to happen. You give someone no, a chocolate orange no.
2: their chocolate
0: orange. <laughs> well no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: not gonna happen. You know what I'm into? I'm a slag for mold wine. I honestly I, me and my boyfriend went away for our anniversary, because I'm a simp. And the amount of mold wine we consumed, we like the place we were staying in was serving it everywhere. Mm. And so we were like, We'll have one to go. Like literally, we. I didn't ever not have a glass of mulled wine and not in my hands. It was. It's my favorite drink of all time. I truly think. I think I've been talking about mulled wine a lot. This. This in the run up to Christmas or in the run up to the festive season. I'm a Jew. I don't know why I'm referencing Christmas. I mean, we do celebrate a bit. Not really. Uh, but like it's. To me, that is what makes the festive season. Is the mulled wine and the smell of mulled spices.
0: Oh, I do love the smell.
2: I do love the smell. I. Yeah, maybe it's time. Maybe you're inspiring me, honey. I think maybe <gasps> I need to. Put it get it on the stove.
1: I think you'd better get it on the hob right now. I mean mm. I'll I'll prep some for you next time we see each other.
2: Please. No, I, I would I would love that. Very, very, wine very warming. <laughs> not together, no. Together actually I find no I, Together that, repulsive. No, no no no. no. Sorry, I had a very <laughs> no intense I reaction like, to that. Like,
1: <laughs> no. no, that's boundaries, I respect it. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Should I'm we sorry. talk about our wonderful episode that we have coming up? Today we are talking to a dear friend of mine, an icon, an inspiration. It is Ioni Gamble, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Polyester Zine, which is just... If you haven't read it, treat yourself, go on their website. They have a community online called The Doll's House, which is wonderful. They also have a fantastic podcast that Ioni hosts. Yeah,
2: definitely big fans over here at The Body Protest. Um, One of the things, when I was um, just having a little look at her website before we were speaking to her... Did you know, she was, she was very modest when she did her intro. She was named one of the coolest 15 young Londoners by the Evening Standard a few years ago. What wow. That, what do you know? Imagine being one of the coolest Londoners. I thought that was wow. That's really cool. So I would be, that that be to uh, herself. <laughs> I know, I would be dropping that in. I'd be telling
1: into everybody. I would be telling everybody and their cousin. Like, fuck. Doesn't surprise me. Completely checks out. She's one of the coolest people I've ever met, for sure. She talks really beautifully in this episode about like how special print is and why she's continued to make zine a print publication um and the kind of blood sweat and tears and love that goes into that she talks about her experience at fashion school um and also her experience as a fat woman and how that fits in with fashion she also talks about her chronic illness really beautifully and honestly which obviously we can expect more of in her book poor little sick girls which is a collection of essays about that experience but yeah i'm just so excited for everyone to listen to this episode uh we've really loved chatting with ione So today we are very very excited to be joined by the fantastic Ioni Gamble. We adore you here but I think it would be better to let you introduce yourself. So Ioni tell us a bit about yourself.
0: Okay. I, I always, you know, so like whenever someone asks you to introduce yourself, you're like, I am nothing. Yes, <laughs> I am <that> <laughs> what do I like? <laughs> um, so I'm Ioni I am the founding editor in chief of a zine called Polyester, which is, and we describe it as an intersectional feminist arts and culture publication. Um, I founded it seven years ago in my second year of university. I am also a writer sometimes. I have a book coming out next year called Poor Little Sick Girls, and I host the Polyester podcast. Amazing.
2: It's so good to have you. Thank you. So let's dive right in. And what we'd like to start with is finding out a little bit about your relationship with your body growing up.
0: Mm. Oh my god, such a big one. (laughs) Most people probably have a complicated relationship with their body growing up. Um, I am 27. So I kind of grew up I grew up like reading Heat magazine and reading like all those awful magazines that were like totally horrible and like Circle of Shame or like Victoria Beckham's abs like are really standing out in my mind right now. I don't know. I
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I also remember like her feet. You know what I mean? Like it was yeah, like, loving her abs, criticizing had her
0: feet, <laughs> yeah, and her boobs. And I thought that's what boobs actually looked like when she had her implants in. I was like, oh my god, that like why don't anyone else's boobs look like that? But hers do, but that must be not very weird. So I think I had, like, a strange relationship. Um, I was, like, not fat growing up. That would be, like, um, wrong to say. But I wasn't skinny either. So I think as soon as I kind of hit puberty was, like, very, like, you know, into all of the kind of, like, weight loss bullshit of being a teenager. So I think definitely complicated, probably uh, most accurately surmises. My relationship with my body growing up
2: yeah and as you say kind of growing up in that period it's it's hardly surprising with all of the, all of those different influences and I think it was a very particular kind of time with how mm-hmm. people spoke about women's bodies maybe in particular and if you're happy to share how do you feel about your body now what's your relationship with your body now like
0: um I think it's you know uh certain so, like good and bad, certain like acceptance, overriding everything else, um I think in terms of like image um fine, and I've always been in kind of a place, even since being a teenager, where to me, my body is kind of this tool that I can use to do other things, like dress or hair or makeup or whatever, and more focused on like using those tools to make myself how I want to look than weight loss or whatever or exercise or just anything else so kind of like a tool for creative expression in a way I think definitely because I have Crohn's disease and like chronic illness it can just like often feel that my body is like my worst enemy but for like very practical reasons like or impractical reasons more accurately like oh why why is this deciding to hurt this day or like what's going on like kind of feels like a stranger in that way that like I won't understand it so I think it's very mixed.
1: How has living with chronic illness affected your relationship with yourself like was I don't want to make you tell us kind of details about your Crohn's but like did it kind of um, impact your relationship when you were diagnosed?
0: Yeah I think my body like my relationship with my body totally changed when I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease but also I was kind of diagnosed in like quite a pivotal life period anyway so I was 19 I was in my first year of uni so I think it was just like a couple of weeks after my 19th birthday which obviously like was very weird anyway like living independently for the first time away from family like making new friends doing this course blah 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 and then suddenly I was kind of like very ill or it wasn't really that sudden but as in like suddenly I was in hospital after a period of being very ill and I think that definitely changed how I think about my body because in the months leading up to that hospitalisation and diagnosis I had gotten like very skinny in a way that wasn't really natural for me so like for the first time in my life for example I could see my rib cage and like I thought it's because I'm walking like however many miles every day because I stupidly got like my first student house actually really far away from my university so (laughs) and you know like I'm not being cooked for like but whatever but really it was that like my body was eating itself from the inside out and I think like that changed my relationship with my body because then it was flung straight into a period of like quite intense weight gain from being on steroids and other medication obviously also just regaining the weight that I lost from being poorly and like coming back to health and I think that changed my relationship with not just like my bo- my body, but like how we view skinniness versus fatness in terms of, you know, skinny is healthy and fat is unhealthy because that was just like very clearly proven to be untrue for me. So that kind of changed a lot of things for me in terms of like how I look at my body and not constantly thinking that I'm doing something wrong by not being skinny, um, And then since then it's just like an ever fluctuating thing of how I feel about my body because as I said it's like if my body's like not well my body never behaves but like if it's not doing what I want then it's quite easy to get resentful towards my body and all of these types of things but I think definitely in terms of like body image that was a positive thing to come out of being diagnosed and living with chronic illness.
2: I think it's so interesting because in a way, from what you're saying, it sounds like you almost have to take care of your body more to look after yourself and your body needs more looking after. And I think that can be pivotal for people, especially when you're that kind of age. Looking after your body is not necessarily front of mind. You're at uni, you're Mm. kind of like, we can do whatever we want and actually just, oh, your body needs to be looked after. And I think that can affect how, how you feel about it. So yeah, thank you for, for sharing. So I would like to switch topic a little bit and go to talking about polyester. So you said at the top that you founded polyester seven years ago. So what was that? 2014, in your yeah. second year of uni. So it's been going around for a while. Um, I feel like from strength to strength, it seems to be growing and growing. I think maybe to start, perhaps for people who are unfamiliar with polyester, could you give a bit of a blurb around that? And I know you said you've got the podcast as well now, but maybe really what it is and and what led
0: you to, to set it up.
1: Yeah, what was the mission statement?
0: So I think the mission statement when we started, our tagline has always been, have faith in your own bad taste. And then it was like a celebration of trash and camp, I think. Um, All that good stuff. Yeah. And we were basically given, like, an assignment at uni to make magazines in groups. And at the time, I was, like, spending a lot of time on Tumblr and, like, other parts of the internet and seeing a lot of, like, female and queer artists making work that was, like, very good. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> I found it really inspiring. But like, that wasn't necessarily being translated into like the media I was enjoying. So like, for days weren't giving these people write ups or ID or whoever, basically. And I thought that was like a real shame, because these were people that were like kind of blending artistic expression with feminist thought or other socio political thought. And I have always kind of thought of like print publications as being like the most special thing you can do because that's kind of like how I grew up like reading these magazines and then going to university to study fashion journalism um so I thought I should make one Uh, and so I did and that's kind of like been the continuous thread I suppose like seeking out these people whether they're marginal, like all are marginalized but like from any specific kind of like marginalization that means the mainstream or like bigger alternative media just doesn't really give them their dues and also kind of like I think that was kind of a pivotal time in changing who we saw as aspirational like it kind of shifted from being you know like the classic musicians actors people that are traditional celebrities to like the people that we follow online or the people that are perhaps closer to us that seem more aspirational in like a more realistic and healthy way as opposed to being quite unhealthy. And yeah, so it's been seven years now. I always forget how many print scenes there are. I think it's like twelve. And we also have a podcast and an online platform and we do lots of events too.
2: That's awesome. And I think so inspiring as well to hear that this came out of a university project. I think sometimes like you do your undergrad project or whatever and you're like, oh I'm like Jeff kinda of fulfilling a task, but actually that can turn into something that you're still working on seven years later and it's like you're it's it's such a huge big thing.
1: And it is a phenomenon like the fact that you're working with Valentino, Gemma Collins, Zwei. Like that those are just the most recent collaborations. It's like the fact that this started as, you know, something that came out of university is so special, you know, what an achievement.
2: Oh, thank you. Yeah, completely. I mean, and over the years I'm really curious to to hear what you've learned from doing it and and maybe how how the theme's evolved over time and have you made any pivots along the way or
0: I think that like there's been a natural evolution in terms of just like age and the way that culture moves along like for example the way like a lot of the core thoughts are still there but the way in which I was kind of describing celebrity culture changing that could, like, maybe be translated to just, like, featuring traditional influencers, which I would say are, like, more close to traditional celebrities than the people I'm really talking about, which are, like, creative people that have, like, a few other strings to their. but, I mean, I like influencers as well, like, obviously Gemma Collins as well, but, like, all these people that kind of go against the mainstream in some sort of way or just pave their own path have, like, always been really, really important and have a point of view, like, I think, having a point of view is the most important thing to polyester, whether that's in terms of like creating imagery or the like talent that's featured. I think things that I've learned is to just like constantly check in with yourself and my team now on like, am I doing this because I like think it's actually really good? Like, does this have longevity, for example? Okay, like this is kind of a shady example, you can cut if you want. But like, I remember... When Grimes' Art Angels came out, I was, like, so obsessed with her. And I was, like, desperate to get her for polyester. Like, desperate. I, like, begged so many PRs. And now I'm, like, oh, my God, thank the high heavens that didn't happen. Like... Especially with people like that you have to be not people like Grimes specifically but like celebrities you have to be so careful well, And they never think, know who's
1: going to end up with Elon it's Exactly like it's, a, it's a risk
0: Exactly And I think like the cover stars we have had like Tavi Gervinson like Jamma like Z-Way like Polly Noor for example
1: My vagina <laughs> Exactly
0: <laughs> Honey Ross's vagina These are all things that have real longevity and culture <laughs> <laughs> um I think it's about sticking with that and like also constantly checking in with yourself because I think it is really easy to get complacent in a way like being like oh, I'll just do this because like it will do this amount of numbers for whatever or like this many followers or blah 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 blah, 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 blah when really like you have to remember the thing you are rallying against in the first place to like constantly make sure you don't become it I suppose yeah
1: very very true and I feel like I mean, you stay very true to yourself in this process. And I think apart from longevity, are there other things that help you deem if something's polyester worthy, like when you're making those decisions?
0: Uh, My kind of rule is to like always try and get weirder and weirder or like more unexpected as things go on. So like, I think we can all kind of like see or most people that listen to this maybe will have seen how like feminism has arced over since 2014, essentially like from being this like, cult thing in the beginning and just like a re-emergence of a movement to then like shaving adverts and as that became more prominent like the kind of sanitization of feminism it became more important to push against it so whether that's doing like a shoot of people with double chins or honey with like her vag out and flames coming out of it or like visible stomach rolls or like just different types of bodies that are still considered like taboo I suppose is the word to like mainstream media and publications because like I suppose it would have been quite easy to you know like have watched this rise of corporate feminism and then like ride the wave along it and then like reap the rewards of that but I think it's more important to keep pushing and pushing and pushing even if it's, like... And that's always the stuff that does the best. Like, that's something that I've learned with polyester because, like, I think a lot of the things we do are maybe considered to a bigger publication or to advertising agencies or to brands, like, a perceived risk, when really, like, those risks do really pay off tenfold, but very few people are willing to take them. Have there been any risks that you
2: kind of wish you pushed further or that you... or would do in another way?
0: No, I don't think so, actually, like because we're such like an over the top publication anyway, it's hard to think of like how something would be pushed further. And I think we've been like quite, what's the word? There's kind of times in reverse, but obviously it was great. But like, for example, like a lot of the nudity stuff, I like shoot it all, like love it. And then it gets to release and you're like, oh my fucking God, I can't put any of this on the internet. Like that's still such a weird thing for me because like, yeah, obviously I when I was a teenager the internet was still like quite uncensored in that way that like it maybe wouldn't have been like that I suppose that makes me think a lot about how we view bodies or like for example if someone's not buying the print scene, do they have a complete other um, impression of what polyester is because like it's like it has to be two not separate things at all but like it's two different things isn't it like you can't have like full tits and arse out on Instagram it just doesn't work Oh yeah,
1: my cover was removed. Yeah, my, exactly. Cover and cover like, my flame crotch. Taken and we down. got
0: banned from TikTok like a week after starting it. And I was like, oh my wow. God, it was such a reality check. I was like,
2: fudge. Wow. Um, what kind of
0: stuff were you putting out? What is, it, is it just about nudity? No, no, like not at all. I think the TikTok ban was like, actually, we did a series called, I can't remember what it's called anymore, it's so bad. But basically an artist talking about their favourite film. And I think it was cut with clips of like Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. And that's what got us like banned from TikTok. So it wasn't nudity or anything. But like, I feel like we are getting more restricted in that sense. Like TikTok doesn't let you have like open flames in your videos. So once we did like one of those um, trippy Tuesday candles burning for like one of our podcast videos and that got removed as well for like, yeah, being too dangerous. And I think that's really interesting in like how we consume things, like especially if we are trying to make like radical or subversive or just like truthful imagery how much of that is actually going to be possible or like how much does the internet distort how we view things
1: and I guess it only adds more value to the print version because it's like this is the raw unfiltered thing and Mm i mean, to be honest zines have always been such an act of rebellion they've always been passed around Uh, forwarding underground movements and I feel like this is kind of no different of like you're just keeping that spirit alive
0: yeah exactly exactly and it's like weird that we have to think of it like that when there should when it's like the internet is freedom in so many ways but also not in so many others
1: but not in the way that it was when we were growing up I think like that's what we have to remember is like we grew up on tumblr when it was the wild west and like you could scroll and read like an intersectional article and then watch full frontal porn and the next post like it's like it's not like <laughs> that anymore the internet is very very censored maybe for for good like no not for good that's bad I don't want it to be censored I would rather the risk of seeing full frontal porn in between my activism when we first met you told me about the revelation you'd had that you could actually put people that looked like you in your magazine this was like the first time we'd actually met I think and you were doing an incredible issue with just loads of beautiful fat women and people and. I think I had I I am whole as I am or something written across my face. It was really beautiful. I loved that day. Um, but you told me about that revelation and I kind of wanted to ask you a bit about how have you found existing within the industry when it isn't always that welcoming to fat people?
0: Um, I think like not e- easy and not easy in some ways and others. Like I think definitely when you are in fashion school or like I've studied in fashion, they teach you so many things like... For example like the casting is what makes something like professional and by casting they obviously mean like a skinny white cisgender person because like that's like the runway standard um I think it takes like a lot of deprogramming to you know push against that and like then be like oh, I can actually just do whatever I want which thankfully like uh, probably only took me like a nine month arc all in all I think like the longer I exist in an industry it makes me want to be the opposite of it like I'm kind of the person where I like I this always sounds like so negative but I think it's not like I develop my opinions or like not opinions but like I develop what I want to do from like a dissatisfaction and then the satisfaction comes from doing the opposite if that makes sense so like hating most other like publications or their representation of people at least like led me to be more um more myself in my own kind of thing and being like well actually I don't have to assimilate with this because like what's the point like I may as well just go work for someone if I'm happy with that um I think the fashion industry is very unwelcoming to like not just fat people but like many different intersections of identity like whether you're poor or whether you are like not a white person or whether you didn't go to private school or whether you are fat or like so many different things just mean that you're not welcome. And I think we have like a um, a bit of a shiny veneer over it at the moment where it's kind of like feigning inclusivity, but no one is actually willing to give up any semblance of power to mean that that would be true or to like give people better like working conditions or just to make people more comfortable. So I think it's like not great overall. And I think really our only option is to build, like rebuild, our like not rebuild, but like, disregard them and build our own reality I think that's the only way forward really because there's no point trying to change something if it's already rotten and that's just like where I've gotten to in seven years
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm actually very interested to hear a bit more about fashion school and like what you're learning and I don't know is it like seven years or or whatever since you were last there? But are there things that you wish you were taught in fashion school that would have made it more inclusive? Or like would that you think that would be useful for the for people in fashion school to learn to make the industry more inclusive?
0: I think that it was like good to go to university because it helped me develop a sense of self and it gave me the like impetus to start polyester and also the motivation to do that and continue it which I think was good I honestly think in terms of like learning like as fashion journalism I didn't really learn how to write like they kind of teach you like this is a feature this is an interview like I have some interview tips there for example I picked up a lot of it was like cultural padding and I think the thing with that and it's the same with any creative degree basically any degree that's not science or maths and even science and math sometimes, is like, it's so cloaked in the personal opinion of the person that's teaching you. So I went to university at a very like kind of weird time, 2012 to 2015. And I'd say like 2014, when we started polyester, was like the year that Instagram went like big, really, like that everyone started having it. So we were kind of in like the blogging phase. They didn't really teach us about that. But I think... It was a time when a lot of people were, like, unsure about, like, what fashion's role was in anything. And it was before, like, the diversity discussions. So there was a lot of, like, toxic behaviour that was, like, masked as jokes, I suppose. Like, our tutors telling us not to eat. And, um, like, I, I had this whole lecture once about, like, how American apparel ads, like, you know, old American apparel, like, horrible American apparel ads, were, like, fine, to be exploitative in, like, nature because they were, like, ironic. And I was like... A 13-year-old girl, like, looking at a billboard. Because they were everywhere, like, 2010 to 20-whatever, before, like, the demise. Like, she doesn't understand irony. Like, that's not underplaying, like, the mind of a young girl. That's just, like, you don't develop that sense until you're, like... And plus, they're not ironic. Like, whatever. Well,
1: they're not. It's male gaze. It's pure exactly. male gaze. And it like... was, like, the OG. Like, no, it wasn't the OG. But, like, <laughs> you
0: know what I mean? Of,
1: like, it brought back male gaze in a big way. As exactly, away, yeah.
0: but... And there's, like, a lot of talk around that, basically, like, about like intellectualized like misogyny and fat phobia basically and very like deep set like just very odd like it wasn't it wasn't like traumatizing for me personally but it definitely gave me like like lit a fire up my arse to not be like that I don't know what fashion school is like now I mean like honestly with like the fees the way they are and like the little amount that happens like I would be more inclined to advise people just not to go (laughs) and try and find something else because like even then you have to like intern for so long like your time like interning was fine for me because I got so much student loan that like basically the uni like my student loan was a cushion for me to be able to get my foot in the door and I think like whatever your reasons are for studying fashion I just don't think it's going to be like the dream of like you know Lauren Conrad in the hills, Lauren and Heidi at the beginning of the hills. <laughs> like, it's just not that.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, I think that kind of touches into like a whole different aspect of fashion in terms of what you were saying before, in terms of it's like privately school educated, rich people who have parents who live in London, where you can kind of stay and you can afford to do unpaid internships and go around in nice clothes and, and see what happens, whereas the majority aren't afforded that kind of luxury. But I mean, it's very interesting in what you're saying in terms of, I mean, I'm very glad it didn't traumatise you because I think some of it (laughs) does sound traumatising, to be honest. But I think I do wonder what it's like now. And even if it is superficial, I think there is a greater public awareness about the importance of diversity. And and even on the corporate side, you see glimmers of it aesthetically. So in, in terms of advertising, so you see it at that level. But then as you're saying, if you're seeing it, as a veneer and it's not behind the scenes. And what will it take to get the industry to change from behind the scenes will we'll be giving up a lot of, of power. So big, big systems change. Um, in terms of if you could like wave a magic wand and be like, everyone who goes to fashion school should learn this. Do you have anything that, that comes to mind?
0: I would say how to pitch is, like, really into, like, you don't really learn what these things are like, like, this is what I'm saying, we'd have, like, hours of lectures that are, like, the importance of Alexander McQueen, or, like, whatever, 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 those things, like, are great, like, I'm really happy that, like, I have kind of, like, I always say that, like, fashion awareness is just, like, this weird thing in the back of my head that never really goes, no matter how much I disengage with, like, the industry as a whole, like, I do enjoy having, you know, that understanding of things, but really, like, it's just, like, any educational system, like, you don't really learn how to advocate for yourself or actually build, like, a life that's outside of that educational institution because that's not really what they work in, like, it'd be good to know, like, yeah, the realities of going into this situation, like, even, like, unionising or, like, pay or, like, don't take unpaid commissions or do if you want but, like, here's where you should take them from and here's where you shouldn't and, like, all of these things, I think they're all kind of, like, life skills that can also be garnered from, like, having a really solid community around you, so... I think we just need to look at alternative modes of education as a whole or, like, just, it, you know, gateways into industries. University shouldn't have to be a gateway into fashion. Like, it's ridiculous. But we've put it there because of, yeah, the industry being mostly populated by upper-class and middle-class people and it's not really necessary.
2: Sure. I guess maybe moving on a little bit, but kind of thinking about big-picture change within the fashion industry if education is not necessarily the big thing what would you say what would you like to see within the fashion industry or, or again what do you think it might take for the fashion industry to be more inclusive Part, apart well and I, I know you did say about just like yeah, know, building like it dinos- up from the beginning but like <laughs> the
0: dinosaurs need to die <laughs> like it's literally just it isn't it like and like that's you know no but the thing is like even if they do there will be someone that's happy to replace them and like i think we now have like slightly more power of as like not as in just like us three people that are like you know tangentially related to it but like the people that are listening to this or the people that follow polyester or the people that follow either of you on instagram i think we do have more power because like for all of social media's down points it really does give us the opportunity to show support for like things that won't get support from like an like monetary support from an industry specifically or like won't be accepted by those gatekeepers so like if you like something like try and support it in whichever way you can because I think for polyester like that's really been integral like building a very solid community of like people around it and then taking seven years and like Valentino for example this year is like our first high fashion collaboration but it's like if you really put in that work to connect with people not on the basis of like we're so cool you'll never be us so you have to read about us but on a basis of like you are also included in this like what do you want to see from it like we're gonna show you reflected back at you rather than like what you should be so I think like consumers which is obviously the cold way to put it like audiences and communities really do have like some power in that sense and like we just have to shift our mindset away from like still idealizing the things that are out there that are toxic because like we all get the buzz like if you are in this industry or like seeing your favorite person in one of those magazines or being in one of them yourself it still feels like a bit of a like (gasps) me moment but we need to like recalibrate those moments to like actually serve us like what does that look like what do these achievements look like without these power structures that actually do damage us even if they pretend not to.
2: Mm, that's so so interesting i think really important as well and i think as you were saying in terms of social media there is more of a meritocracy although we can also go on to the the problematic algorithm that that makes it (laughs) still very skewed so
0: yeah it's a nightmare isn't it but (laughs) you have to find little pockets completely
1: i think you maybe slightly already answered this question but And that is in saying kind of the veneer of inclusivity. But do you think that the kind of nod to representation we've seen in like with plus size people, with people of colour, do you think that that's here to stay? Or do you think that that is a flash in the pan for the fashion industry of them trying to act inclusive and they're not actually going to follow through with it?
0: I think it like depends. I don't think we're going to see like widespread inclusivity anytime soon and I think we're kind of, like, fed these crumbs that keep us happy, and then it goes away again, like, even over the course of, like, the past 24 months, or two years, or whatever, it's, like, one step forward, three steps back, in a way, like, for example, I was, like, looking at a shop online, and they go up to, like, a 24 or something, maybe a 26, I don't know, it's European sizing, and then I went into the shop, and they only had smalls and mediums in store, and it's, like, so what are you saying here, like, what is this messaging, like, clothing stores like in person are the places where fat people are like excluded most like have like I can't enjoy going shopping anymore when it was literally like my favorite thing because you can't buy clothes like you just can't and so I think it takes so much it seems to take so much for these companies to do the the most tiny thing then it's like how can there be like widespread change I just don't see it being realistic like it's so hard for fat people to buy clothes or to like participate in the things that are very normal for other people so i always try and focus on like the things that are that are within my reach to do which is like yeah shoot these fat people in like the most glamorous way possible do this do that and like hope that these tiny footsteps do like make ripples elsewhere like i really loved I saw this week that like Ghani have extended into plus sizing now and apparently are bringing like more and more in in the next few weeks and it's like yeah that's great I mean their clothes are fucking expensive I can't afford them but like fab like it was a whole campaign like with actually fat women that had double chins like not just like you know like the Kim Kardashian curvy or whatever like actually like yeah, like girls in bodycon with like actual visible tummy lines and stuff like that. Like that stuff, I love to see. But like for every one of them, you have like five Instagram adverts that I get that will swipe up on and like a large as a twelve. And like it's literally just like fuck off. Um, so I don't think I think basically that inclusivity is not. It may be a long term. We might see it. Like we might still see like the one fat girl on the Versace runway. We might see like. Them having one fat girl in their Christmas campaign, we might see like people of colour incorporated and like trans and non-binary people incorporated, but it's so tokenistic. Like, what does an actual overhaul look like? I just don't see it as realistic in like the next five, ten years. Like, what would it take? I don't even know.
2: So, what I'm thinking about, maybe as a straight-sized person, is like, how could you even like define the plus size industry? Like, what are we talking about? And like, if I'm looking at a brand, what qualifies as from like your point of view as an inclusive brand I think
0: like for me obviously I'm not on like the bigger end of the fat spectrum like I do fit into some like if something goes up to an 18 I'm normally fine like I would love to see like lots of brands jump on board with like 4x 6x like bigger than that and I think it is like Kind of the job of, like, straight-sized people to advocate for that, because at the end of the day, like, people don't care about fat people. And they obviously don't care about our spending power, which is what this all comes down to, like, money, as fucking everything else does. Like, they don't care about our spending power because the options are so limited. So, like, fat people can scream into the void as much as they want to and, like, try and convince people that we actually do like clothes. But people are clearly not... Like, the people that own these brands are not interested in hearing us. So you know, I think that makes shopping, like, an interesting experience, and uh, also a more creative one, I suppose, in that, like, you have to seek these things out, or, like, maybe if you can get something custom made, and there's so many, like, smaller Instagram designers and graduates now that are facilitating that, and maybe that is, like, a place where we will see more movement, like, if these designers kind of get bigger and work up the ranks or whatever, but I do think it's, yeah, for, like, because we see so much of, like, yeah, fat people just trying to advocate for themselves. But like, if there's a brand and you have fat friends or you just follow fat people, then you should turn around to these like in the comment sections of these people and be like, "Where are the fat sizes?" Like, it's so frustrating to even go in plus, like plus sizes and see they only go up to like an eighteen. Then it's like, what the fuck is that? Like, sometimes plus sizes starting at a fourteen now, which is just absolutely bananas.
1: Also, the worst thing is you message a brand going like, hi, are you going to extend your size range? And they just go, we're working on we're working it. And on then they
0: it. do it and
1: it's 1X. And you're like, wow, thank you so much. Or it's like, like it's just like...
0: literally like a tent shape with a print on it. And it's like, why can't you just extend your normal, your normal clothes? No, I know. I'm like, I liked your original
1: range. Well, no, that's... I've. I mean, I love, like, not naming names, but I'm going to name names. Daily Sleeper. I, like, tweeted, like, Daily Sleeper, why do I always get advertised your stuff? And then I go to buy it and I can't fit my ass into it. And they were like, we're working on it. We're going to extend the size range. They did. And Daily Sleeper sell their pyjamas in every fucking color, like, marabou-trimmed, stunning pyjamas. I wanted a pair my whole life. Not my whole life, but for as long as I knew they existed. My (laughs) whole My whole bloody life. And they only released uh, the plus-size ones, which only went up to 2X in black even though they did like a a plethora of colors for every other set it was like wow don't even give us an option exactly
0: it's just like it's so tedious like it gets to a point where it's so tedious just like wanting things that you can't have then it's like what do you do with that don't know
1: well no what you do is you have to create your own you know you have to divine your own uh desires of what you want and what you you know think is cool and that's so exactly honey's what got done. 30
0: marabou trims coming in the post <laughs> and
1: it, truly one year me and my sister were like we're gonna make our own like sugar daddy robes like with the like marabou <laughs> trims and we went to a little craft shop it was like a boxing day project it was very fun that's so cute it was very we love to do a little project <laughs> but you do have to get
0: crafty if you're yeah. fat you really do yeah, yeah like, you there's absolutely no you ways do. about it you do and then, like
1: in a way it's a much more exciting experience than just going to a shop and looking for something on your size. I think
0: it makes you value stuff like a lot more and like I've always thought of like you know dressing as like all my clothes as these kind of things that I hope to keep and like preserve in some way or whatever and like obviously that's a whole different thing if your weight fluctuates or whatever but like I do think it makes you think of things as special but also I would also like to buy five shit dresses in a week if I really want to I know that's really bad to say. but I feel
1: like thin people are allowed to do that. Yeah. And no one bats an eye. And it's like, come on, I just want to have the option. Yeah, exactly.
0: Like just give me the chance to be an awful person to the environment.
1: Let me consume, consume, consume like everyone else.
0: (laughs) So you're writing a book at the
1: moment or you've written a book. Can you I'm not sure if you can, but can you tell us anything about it?
0: Oh, yeah, I'll tell you everything about... <laughs> <laughs> you spill the
1: tea.
0: I have such loose lips. Like, I just talk- no one's told me not to talk about anything, so I'll just talk about everything. Um, okay, good. We love that here. It's called Poor Little Sit Girls, and it is an essay collection. It's like, there's lots of different threads to it, I suppose, so it's a bit confusing for me to talk about, but I think that's just because I've just written it, so I'm a bit like, eh. But it basically, like, uses my... Like experience with chronic illness to cast a new lens on like not just feminism but lots of like social issues that we've been interested in since I started polyester or like since feminism got big or whatever so like looking at the commodification of self-care and like tracing that back to kind of like the civil rights movement but also the fact that self-care was actually invented for like institutionalized um, patients of medicine to gain autonomy and then kind of looking at how we've gone from that to buying stuff, but then also conversely, like, is buying stuff such a bad thing? Like, why have we had to moralise shopping so much in that, like, our tampons have to be, like, good for our heads as well as, like, blocking our periods? Like, I think, (laughs) you know, it's like looking at all of... Because I grew up in, like, you know, Confessions of a Shopaholic era, like, Carrie, like, Blair from Gossip Girl, like, glamorizing shopping. I'm not saying either are good, but whatever. And then it also looks at, like... The history of like, you know, unwell women and how we either glamorise or fetish th- fetishize them um, kind of looks at like the rise and fall of Tumblr feminism. It looks at like a lot of things, class, fatness, illness. Um, I'm very excited for it. It comes out May next year. I'm doing the edits now, so my head's like a bit scrambled coming to think about it. But um, I hope people will like it. Like I, I think it's interesting because with... Like, it's in, it's been an interesting project to do. I'm not being like, my book is very interesting. <laughs> Even though I hope it but is. I, I'm sure it is. <laughs> it sounds um, it. has been an interesting experience because Polyester has always been like, obviously me asserting my point of view, but very much through handing over the mic, being like, well, I can assert it through, like, doing this shoot or I can assert it through commissioning this writer or, like, having this theme which a lot of other people respond to and kind of, like, tapping into the collective consciousness more than my own opinions so this is kind of the first time I've actually sat down and been like, oh, I, I do actually chat a lot of shit about all of these things. Like, how do I make that substantial?
1: No, that's a really wonderful test to yourself of, you know, actually sitting down and being like, I've got a lot to say and I'm going to say it. Yeah. Um, And I think, you know, the world is going to be a better place for having your book out there in it. And I just can't wait to read it.
2: only tell us what you do to feel good in your body. What do you do to take care of yourself?
0: Um, I love doing my makeup. I love getting my nails done, it's my favorite ever thing. I love just like spending two hours getting my nails done and then staring at them for three weeks and then just doing it again. That's exactly what I do, I've been admiring your nails all the way (laughs)
1: through. You You have the most incredible nails always. I love them.
0: She's going on holiday for two months. I don't know what I'm going to do. Come to my place. I will. <laughs> I literally Come will. Come with me and my mum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I
1: love that so much. Ione, thank you so much for joining us on the Body Protest Podcast.
0: Anytime. Thank you for having me.
1: And uh, what can our followers and listeners
0: do to support you and your work? Um, they can follow polyester at Polyestrazine or me at Ione Gamble, which is spelled I-O-N-E and then Gamble.
1: Or listen to the polyester podcast. Oh, yes, that is
0: very true. Thank you, honey. <laughs> you can listen to the polyester podcast.
1: It's very, very good.
0: Thank you. Gorgeous. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: That was such a brilliant conversation with Ione. I mean, she is just such a cool, interesting, wonderful woman. I really adore her. Um, I would love it if we could take it back a bit and dive into what the research says about body image and chronic
2: illness? Yeah it's a great question and honestly there's not a huge amount like there's not a huge amount of research looking at this topic so there's definitely seems to be a gap in the literature that addresses body image and chronic illness in the same piece. That's very really interesting why do you think that is? I'm not entirely sure I think there's a couple of things it might be so I think in part it could be to do with a Perhaps a nervousness to talk to people with chronic illnesses about their relationship with their bodies because of the added complication of the chronic illness and their body not, quote, behaving in a normative way. People may be holding back from asking those questions. And it might be that body image isn't really recognised as an important enough issue among people with chronic illness or chronic health conditions because of the condition and, and because that condition takes precedence. So, I'm just speculating, but there that's a, a few things I was thinking about. And then I guess because chronic illness is often invisible and relatively common, it's also likely that people with chronic illnesses are included in a lot of the general population body image studies, but there's just less focus on them as a subgroup. And then because chronic illnesses or chronic health conditions are so diverse it might not always feel super meaningful to collapse them all together in one heterogeneous group so it may be that a little bit more digging is required and you focus on a particular like subgroup or like particular illness and then explore body image from that point so I don't know it's 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 an it's an interesting one and I think it is I have heard people talk about it in terms of like it is something that we need to do more of um but I always forget to do this but I need to be better at it A little disclaimer, I'm not a clinician. I'm definitely not an expert in chronic illness. So these little noodles are just for educational purposes. And if you want more, you can check out our Patreon and we can look at some more papers together. (laughs) Please.
1: Um, I think those are all really brilliant theories as to why. And yes, please, please do check out our Patreon. We're going to also be having much more casual... And exclusive conversations. We are going to really be pushing for this Patreon, guys,
2: so you might as well sign up so it stops <laughs> annoying you. <laughs> yeah, just do the deed and then um, never look back. <laughs> Have fun with us for the rest of your life. Like, it's just going to be great vibes. Plain sailing. <laughs> 100%. So let me get back to the question on body and chronic illness. So as I... Mentioned chronic illnesses are relatively common in the population though estimates seem to vary quite a lot in children and adolescents. Population estimates seem to be around the 10 to 15% mark and then the incidence of chronic illness generally increases with age. Then I think it's worth taking a moment to think about what chronic illnesses or chronic health conditions are. So as I mentioned before, they're a really diverse group of conditions. So it can include things like asthma, arthritis, diabetes, cystic fibrosis, cancer, chronic pain, Crohn's disease, kidney disease. Like That's not an exhaustive list even. So there's a lot of different things that fall under that chronic illness umbrella. There are some definitions within the scientific literature that looks at the duration of the chronic health condition so looking at a range from like at least three months to something that's going to be in someone's life forever so it's it's always going to be there in some capacity and then I think it's probably worth saying here also that we're focusing on physical chronic illnesses so mental illnesses can certainly be chronic and actually often are and of course, people with physical chronic illnesses can also have mental illnesses too. And I don't think it's always helpful separating the two out. But that's what we're doing for the sake of this noodle. So just take everything with a pinch of salt and and think about the, the bigger picture. For this noodle, we're focusing just on physical chronic illnesses. But anyway, I appreciate I've not got to body image yet. Um, but as I said before, there really isn't that much, at least when you have that first initial look at it. And then I found one paper and I was initially very excited by when I saw the title but then as I read through I was like a little less excited about. Wait what was the paper called? So the paper was called Body Image of Children and Adolescents with Chronic Illness a Meta-Analytic Comparison with Healthy Peers. So a promising title particularly because it's a meta-analysis which if you're less familiar, it's like a dreamy. I am. Please fill
1: me in. What's a meta analysis?
2: <laughs> so essentially, it's like a dreamy genre of paper when you're looking for a good overview or something. Because essentially, what it is, is when researchers pull studies together, they use a fancy statistical technique to combine the results of these multiple individual studies. And the reason this is so useful is because by combining all of these different studies you have more data, you have bigger numbers, so then you can be more precise and more accurate in the estimates and the conclusions that you're drawing when you're trying to answer a certain question. But there's this whole thing about power, so you want to make sure when you're doing like statistical analysis that you have enough power, so essentially you have enough people to then for your results to actually mean something. So by having these meta-analyses and pulling together all of this data, you can essentially have better power to detect an effect so you can see what's happening so anyway this particular meta-analysis was published in 2013 and it draws on 330 studies to compare the body image of young people with and without a chronic physical illness across a broad range of conditions diseases and they found that children and adolescents with chronic illness had a less positive body image than healthy children as a comparator Although the average size of that difference was small. So that's kind of interesting. But then when you look at the paper a little more closely, like the issue for me is that they include higher weight as a chronic physical illness, which. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Don't like that. Which, yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> and, and they don't just say higher weight, they use the medical term that begins with an O. Um, and so, and they Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> that took me a second. Yeah. But as someone who was
1: technically the O word and a child with chronic illness, I've got arthritis, I've got better body image than most of my friends. But not I mean obviously exceptions to every rule, but you know, anyway. No, but I think Sorry, but we I'm can like, take
2: it personally. No, but we can we can we can get into that. But I think by yeah. kind of compounding this idea of a body size being a chronic illness, I mean there's so many problems with that. As an aside, like there is that we can go that we can go into. but by doing by doing that, and actually that was the largest subgroup of chronic illnesses by quite some margin within this big sample, we know that already. Like we know that young people who are higher weight are, at higher risk of experiencing poor body image because of society because of how society views higher weight and we know with they're at higher risk of being teased or bullied because of their weight and like we know that appearance-based teasing and bullying is a really important risk factor for poor body image so essentially by having that classification in there as I say problematic on many many levels but in this context having that in there I think skews the data somewhat so then that conclusion of people who have a, or children, young people who have a chronic physical illness have have worse body image or less positive body image, whatever language you want to use around that, I'm not sure how compelling that conclusion is. That all being said, I think there is something to look at in relation to when either the condition itself or the treatment results in changes in appearance so changes to weight either up or down changes in other aspects of appearance so with your complexion with your skin so things like spots acne um it can change your hair like thinning hair for example so all of these factors can increase a person's risk of negative body image or body image anxiety because of all the societal pressures to meet narrow appearance standards, the comparison with others, appearance-based teasing, all of those things that we've spoken about before. So we have all of those things that to help us explain why that might be, why we might see people with a chronic illness maybe experiencing worse body image at times and then there's that other component that we've spoken about before on the podcast in our six sad girls episode where we're thinking about it can be more challenging to have a positive relationship to your body if your body is not always functioning in a way that you would like or that society demands or that's kind of considered normative so like that it can change your your relationship with your body from that point of view But all of that said, just because something might be challenging, at least conceptually, it doesn't mean that everyone with a chronic illness is going to feel bad about their body. So to your point, saying that you you probably had a better body image than, than your peers, that is entirely possible and actually in many ways can be common because it may be that they've had to, because of their chronic condition, reframe their relationship to their body altogether and therefore be more resilient to some of those pressures. And so... There's actually some really interesting work by some of my colleagues at my research centre that do a lot of work looking at people with a visible difference that might be related to a chronic condition or chronic illness. And they quite consistently find that this population doesn't necessarily have a worse body image than people without a visible difference. So I think, again, it's like you can't judge that book by its cover. Its Body image is very much that internal relationship with your body. And I think sometimes when people experience challenges and maybe adversity or or whatever in, in connection to their body they may have built more resilience to feel better in their body
1: definitely though that definitely rings true I really hear that for listeners who have friends or family members with chronic illness how can they support them and their relationship with their body
2: yeah, great question. Always something good to come back to. All the general things that apply to everyone, right? So let's have some neutral body talk or like neutral talk around bodies, around food, around appearance, not praising thinness or or hating on fatness. As I only said, like when she lost weight, she was really unwell. So celebrating weight loss is so harmful. And I think it's like considering all of that. And then I think sometimes what I have seen and heard is when people maybe have a chronic health condition, but then they are praised because they're thin and it's like so it's like oh you're you're still like like highly highly problematic and it's like we just need to like really eradicate all of that conversation around around bodies and around weight and then I think again as, as we say it's useful to everyone encouraging and modeling acceptance and gratitude and compassion in reference to one's body so just being that like positive role model so you can be a part of that buffer system I guess for people and then something that I've come across when we're thinking about people who've got chronic health conditions specifically is like boosting their self and this maybe this is more in, in in connection to young people but but I think it stands for everyone in terms of like boosting the person's self efficacy and boundaries around what their body needs in that moment so they feel Um, more confident about managing their chronic health condition they understand it they know what they need but all of those things can be empowering and foster greater agency and understanding of their body and their individual body and them as a person I think that can that can be useful then the other thing I wanted to reference quickly was there's a free online resource designed to support young people with conditions or injuries affecting their appearance created by a range of experts including some of my colleagues at the Centre for Appearance Research called YP Face It and there's a web page that we can link into the show notes and it's really designed to help build some of that resilience for young people so it's not specific to all chronic health conditions as I said there it's a big diverse group but there might be nuggets in there that might be useful for people. So particularly maybe parents who are working with young people or young people themselves might be something just to have a look at because I think it's always good to think about different different approaches and it's free, so it's good to, good to have a look.
1: Thank you so much for that, Nadia. That's a brilliant resource and a delicious bowl of knowledge noodles as always thank you so much for listening to the body protest podcast we really hope you enjoyed this episode and it would mean the world to us if you could rate review share and subscribe
2: you know what to do and if you're left wanting more why not check out our new patreon for some exclusive bonus content you can now also drop us an email at thebodyprotest at gmail.com this
1: podcast is produced by the
2: sensational
1: daisy grant and our dreamy music is by eve garland and our new knowledge noodle jingle is by zane morris